0: We're in a series on the book of Malachi, when spiritual intimacy feels elusive. And the reasons for that, we're continuing with the one-verse text that we started last Sunday night, Malachi 2.10. I want to talk to you about sinning against the body of Christ. Malachi 2.10. By the way, if you're here and you don't have notes yet, or a prayer list, if you put your hand up, ushers will come and bring one to you. Anybody? You just have to see your hand. Wave it a little bit. Over here on my left. Anybody else? Will this cover it? The text is Malachi 2.10. Just one verse, which is kind of a, a miracle for us in itself. Here's what we read last Sunday night. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? We kind of laid down two easily overlooked principles regarding the way God's people make approach to him in worship. The first was the idea that we can approach God, as long as we approach, we can approach on our terms rather than His. And if you recall, right back to the beginning of this series, there was the situation, Israel back in their own city, temple, bringing sacrifices, but because times were lean, times were hard, rather than bringing, as they were supposed to, an unblemished lamb, or animal, for sacrifice. They would bring what they felt they could afford to give, given the drought and the leanness of the crops and the lack of feed for the animals. And so they would bring animals that were lame or blind, less than perfect. And the priests were corrupt as well because, well, they wanted the people to keep coming. And so you give them what they want. It's marketing. And so the whole system had become somewhat less than what God had commanded. And God calls them to task for it, as though they thought sincerity was enough. As long, I'm trying to be a good person. Of course, the lesson from the text is to obey is better than sacrifice. So sincerity of heart, still a commonly held belief. I mean, worship is just however I feel I want to worship in my heart, rather than God himself decides how he is to be approached and how he is to be worshipped. That was the first principle we looked at. The second principle we started on last Sunday night was the fact that our worship of God is is a communal event in the sense that when I'm negligent, careless, irresponsible in my relationship with you, it doesn't just affect my relationship with you, it affects my relationship with God. Today we're going to see how that principle is restated frequently and clearly in the rest of the New Testament. We're going to look at some passages before we come back at the end to Malachi 2.10. Such an important principle this is, that my relationship with God is affected by my relationship with you. If I'm ungracious, unforgiving, slanderous, evil in my relationship with you, it isn't just my relationship with you that's affected. It's my relationship with God that's affected. And the fact that that's true we have on pretty good authority hear these words from jesus our lord god the son in matthew chapter 6 verse 12 and then verses 14 and 15 and and jesus takes our personal relationships and ties them to if there's ever if there's ever any part of my Christian walk that appears to be just me dealing with God, surely it would be prayer, right? If there's anything that looks like just my personal relationship with God, you would think it would be my prayer life, and yet Jesus, in giving what we today have come to call the Lord's Prayer, teaches that my prayer life, my relationship with God, is affected by my relationship with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Here's what Jesus said. Part of it you'll know, Matthew six twelve. We usually say it every Sunday night. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 14, 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father, that's God, will also forgive you. But if, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, horizontal, neither will your father forgive your trespasses, vertical. So Jesus takes the thing that we would consider to be the most personal, private relationship with God, and he says it, it's attached to relationships in the body of Christ. That's the same big idea laid down in the 10th verse of Malachi chapter 2. And the point we're going to examine now is you don't have to strain even a bit to see this restated and explained in the New Testament as well. I want to look at three other passages that are removed from the dating of Malachi's writing by hundreds and hundreds of years, but prove the permanence of that principle. So here's point number two, if you're in your notes. Here's what I want to do in the rest of this teaching time. I want to look at the creation of a people, the process of growth, and the pathway to deliverance. Those are the three things we're going to look at. The creation of a people, the process of growth, and the pathway to deliverance. So first, the creation of a people. I'm taking you to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Is that in your notes? Okay. <coughs> Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Paul writes... From prison, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with, bearing with one another in love. Bearing one another has to do with people that it, it's not easy to get along with. That's why you have to bear with it. If it's a delight, you don't say bear with that person. If there's an issue, you say you have to bear with that person. So, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he gives the logic behind this request. Because there's one body, one Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, through all and in all. But all of those doctrinal things aren't primarily given as a test of orthodoxy, it's it's given as an incentive to unity. Bearing with people that aren't easy maybe to get along with, who have wronged you in some way, especially if they've wronged you in some way, hurt you in some way. Paul tells us in that third verse, he says, maintain, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice, they don't create that unity. They can ruin it but they don't create it. It's a spiritual unity. This is not a unity based on common interests. So sports or business or hobbies. So there's a natural affinity. That's not the kind of unity he's talking. It's not the kind of unity that you get in the the gymnasium or the fellowship hall because you got coffee and donuts and people like visiting. That's not the kind of unity he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of unity that is made by the same Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts. You can't create this unity just by taking all the denominational labels off of churches. I hear that sometimes. If only there was just one big church without all these labels, then there'd be unity. And there wouldn't be. There wouldn't be. The opposite, this isn't the topic tonight, the opposite of Denominations is the opposite. Isn't unity? It's a state church. It's like the Lutheran Church in Nazi Germany. It, it's like the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. It's like the Church of England, the Anglican Church. In it's you, you don't get unity. You just get a state church that you have to belong to. So this is a unity of the Spirit created by the Holy Spirit. It comes from the inward regenerating work of God. You can't create it, but we all have to treasure it. We all have to maintain this unity. And the rest of the text offers the incentives. Notice the way Paul reminds the church that they have one Lord. Chapter 4, verse 5. Paul's not saying that because he's worried this church believes in dozens of Jesuses. That's not the issue. He's reminding these Christians that there are going to be times when they are wronged by a brother, by a sister in that church, and he's reminding them that, especially at those times, revenge, striking back, that's not my job. I'm not my brother's Lord. Jesus is my brother's Lord. He's my Lord, and he's my brother's Lord. And I can relax, and I can let Jesus be Lord to that person. Paul says the very same thing. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord will be able to make him stand. So the next time somebody feels the urge to share a concern with you, to help you pray more intelligently about someone in a church who's doing a bad thing or somebody starts working Facebook and Instagram. You need to just gently come up to that person and say, I'm sorry, I think you have me confused with Jesus. There's only one Lord and each of us stands before him. Then Paul says there's one faith, one baptism. You see it in verse 5. What he's doing there is we all, we all enter the Christian walk in exactly the same way. The reminder here is that it's the opposite of works. The whole Christian life, my Christian life, your Christian life, is a response to divine, free, wonderful grace and mercy. I didn't deserve it for a second. One faith, one baptism. Baptism shows my, we'll see it tonight. It shows my my participation in the death and resurrection. You'll see down and up. My participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he's not giving that just as a point of doctrine or creed. He's saying, one faith, one baptism. When you were baptized, you, you, you. You died, here's how you keep the unity of the spirit. You died to your personal rights for vengeance. You died to your personal rights to strike back. That's not a part of your Christian walk. Next, the process of growth. Creation of a people, just talked about it, process of growth. Here's Peter's words, 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Notice the the relational uh, element, malice, deceit, envy, slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation, indeed, if you have tasted. Indeed, if, if, indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. How am I going to know? How is anyone going to know that great, boy, that great big if, it just jumps out of that sentence. I didn't put it in there. The Holy Spirit did. What are the signs of new life? What are the signs of genuine conversion? And the Apostle Peter describes the process of how the people of God nourish themselves, how we're shaped into the likeness of Christ, the the construction of a godly life. Of course, passage begins with a warning against sin, but look at the kinds of sins. Put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and slander and hypocrisy fits in there this way pretending uh, pretending that i don't need the lord's grace in my own life as badly as my brother needs my grace pretending that those two things aren't related when they really are it says if you if you're really going to see spiritual life develop there are these relational sins most of them are attitudinal. Deceit, hypocrisy, right in the middle of the list. Other relational sins, they're easy to hide. Especially deceit, by nature, we hide deceit. That's what makes it deceitful. Deceit and hypocrisy, I can keep, I can. I can keep mimicking all the outward look of a Christian life and no one will ever know if there's, if there's deceit in my heart, hypocrisy in my heart. Like, like there are certain sins, Peter is saying, that not only establish my heart with guilt before God, but there are sins that close my own heart to ever be repentant. Like some sins are like certain sicknesses. You get appendicitis, you go into the hospital, they cut out your appendix, you're good as new. There are some sins that are like that. But that's not these sins. Deceitfulness, hypocrisy, malice. These are are sins that they would be more like AIDS would be a good comparison, or anorexia. It's not just a case of removing some inflamed organ or cutting out a tumor. These sicknesses, they destroy the body's ability to nourish itself, to sustain itself. That's what these inward sins do. That's what Peter's talking about here. It's probably why Peter says, I never thought of this before. Probably why Peter says we must come to God's word like newborn infants, verse 2. So right now, I don't know how many babies are in the nursery tonight. Not as many. And they've got their faults. You don't feed them. They can be crabby. Tell you one thing about newborn infants. There's not one of them in the nursery that's ever slandered anybody. Right? There's not one of them that's ever deceived anybody. There, Peter says, come to the word like that. You can fail miserably before the Lord like David with lust, commit adultery, murder, and still find hope and restoration before God. But when you begin to mentally calculate against a brother, when you don't keep the unity of the spirit, when bitterness or ill will or slander sets in and no one else knows because you can... They can't see what's going on in my heart. Peter says, look out for those sins. Look out for those sins. As a rule, I can't show you chapter and verse. Maybe I could. as a rule, sins of attitude are more damaging to the sinner than outward acts of sinful commission. Because we tend to repent of bad deeds a lot quicker than we repent of bad attitudes. Attitudes by, by nature, because they're in, they're in our heart. Attitudes are self-poisoning in a way that deeds aren't. So Peter says, Paul says, keep the unity of the Spirit. Peter says the same thing. Look out for things that destroy the unity of the Spirit. Now I want to talk to you about the pathway of deliverance. Here's a text I've read before. It's long, and I'm not going to go over the same ground. There's something else I want to bring out of it. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. I can't imagine you have that whole text, do you? Wow. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Peter came up to him, Lord, how often will my brothers sin against me and And I forgive him as many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. I don't think Jesus meant 490. I think he just meant a lot more than you think, Peter. Therefore, now Jesus, as he always did, has got a story. Kingdom of heaven may be compared so he's saying the kingdom of heaven works just like this. You can compare it. You can make the comparison. I'm allowing you to make the comparison, Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven really does work like this. It's not just, this isn't just once upon a time story time. This is an illustration of the kingdom. The Kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, children, all that he had and payment be made. And the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. He can't pay this. In a million lifetimes, he couldn't pay this. Out of pity for him, it's it's hard to know. Is the pity for the debt or just... What a foolish person he is, thinking he could pay it back. We're not sure. But out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, forgave him the debt, just like that. But when that same servant went out, the guy that's just been forgiven, he went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, which could legitimately be paid back. And seizing him... He began to choke him, so he got him right around the throat, saying, Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded before him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And this guy doesn't even hear his own words that he just spoke. And he refused. Went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went, reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him. So there's this reckoning. Jesus said, remember, the kingdom of heaven, you can can bet it's just like this. His master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I don't ever want to stand before Jesus and hear these words, do you? I don't ever want to hear it. (laughs) Well, you will if you don't keep the unity of the spirit in the body of Christ. You'll hear these words. Jesus says so. His master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? So there's a link between mercy shown and the mercy he had just received. That's what Jesus says. There's a connection here. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, jailers, sorry, until he should pay all his debt. Now, this isn't parable now. This is Jesus, just like a news broadcaster stating a fact. Parable's over. Now it's straight truth. So also, my heavenly Father will do to how many people? Every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, don't just, I'm almost done, but don't just dance quickly past the little introductory words in 23. They're the most important words. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to. That doesn't just mean, here's a churchy idea, here's a kind of a religious tale. Those words mean Jesus is going to say something about how God rules our lives, how he has created our real daily lives to function, and how joy and peace and the power of the Holy Spirit enter our daily situations. That's what Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Those words mean Jesus is going to try and set me straight about the richness of life. They mean he's going to undo some common misconceptions that I might hold about what's best for me. And here's the principle peace of heart, mind body can only be enjoyed in any church in any congregation can only be enjoyed when God's forgiveness is transmitted through us as fully and as quickly as it has been given to us it's a life principle Jesus, Is trying to explain to Don Horbin how lives get bogged down. And listen, how lives get imprisoned after they have received divine grace. He's not dealing with atheists here. After they've received grace. Don't miss the message. It's in 32 and 34. His master summoned and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. This is a forgiven person. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as, quote, I had mercy on you? Those are some of the most striking words in your New Testament. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. Wicked and forgiven. Do you see Jesus trying to say something here? Do you see a crowd he's trying to address? Wicked and forgiven in the same verse. Which is it? Well, God's forgiveness, if it's not pondered deeply. Here's here's a man who has been forgiven. Listen to me. Here's a man who has been forgiven everything. And is spending the rest of his life in debtor's prison. Do you think Jesus is trying to talk to us about something? Here's a man who has been forgiven everything, divinely forgiven everything, and he's making payments the rest of his life. I pastored my first church in 1976. I think. I was 20 years old when I was pastoring my first church. A little tiny church in Lanigan, Saskatchewan. Town of to about 1,100 people, and a church on a good Sunday that, that might have had about 35, 40 people. I was there for almost three years, and one gentleman just made my life particularly miserable on purpose, I think. And it was hard, my first church. You don't know what you're doing. You're just learning. Pray for little churches all over the place who have nothing but a string of pastors out of Bible school. Jesus has a special reward for congregations like that one day. And I was really upset and I was really miffed. And I, we were about an hour and 20 minutes from Saskatoon where my dad pastored what, what would have been then the largest church in Saskatchewan. And I went and I poured out my heart. Nothing was working right. And this guy was making life miserable for me. And after he heard me talk and talk and talk, he said something, and I've never forgotten it. It's one of those things, words that just stay with you and I'll die remembering them. One of those things. And he said, you want to take something home from church? Here it is. It's Malachi 2.10 and all the other texts wrapped up in one sentence. Dad said to me, never let another person ruin your life by making you hate them. I thought, bingo. <laughs> Never let another person ruin your life by making you hate them. And it changed my attitude. It didn't solve all the problems, but it solved a big problem in my heart. So Malachi 2.10 Have we not all one father? It's us. Why then are we faithless to one another? Ever faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. So here's what it boils down to. I was 30 minutes on the button. If you can keep your worship of God obedient, not just sincere... And if you can keep your relationship with everyone in the body of Christ gracious and loving, you will solve 90% of all the spiritual problems you will ever face. God help us to do it, eh? God help us to do it. So take your word, seal it in our hearts. These are truths that it's so easy to, for all of us to agree trickier to practice when our, we all have egos. We've learned we all have egos. They all get bruised or they get irritated. And we all have a tendency to self-justification. Help us maintain the spirit of unity, the gospel of peace, through the power of your spirit living in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.